All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, I learned Greek on the aeroplane between Finland and Greece. There's only 120 words and phrases in the survival vocabulary. But when we landed in Athens, I could bargain for a taxi. I could tell the driver we were where we were going. I could go out into the market and buy some stuff to eat. I could see that one individual lesson could simply be extensive reading. Then the teacher says, okay, so for the next 40 minutes, we're all going to sit quietly and read a book. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a brave teacher who does that, but it, it's, it would be a well-educated and well-informed teacher who did that. First of all, you've got to believe that by not teaching, people can learn. Mm-hmm. Now, for a teacher, that's a hard thing to believe in. I reckon there are only three things that really matter in learning. What and are they? What you focus on, the quantity of attention given, right. and the quality of attention that's given. The four strands is, is phenomenal and impact, has impacted all of our, our teaching. But I'm, I'm a very curious person. And four is a nice, you know, even number. goes into nice blocks. Was there ever a fifth strand? And Good question. And, <laughs> And, and if I wanted to make a fifth strand, it would be... Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone. Our program isn't for everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community. We have live sessions. We have self-paced learning. And more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. I really hope you are ready to dive deep into the fascinating world of applied linguistics because today, 
we're in for a treat. Gracing our show is none other than the legend himself, Paul Nation. Hailing from Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, Paul has stamped his authority as one of the titans in English language teaching. With an uncanny knack for simplifying complexities, he's not just a name, but a beacon of inspiration who has transformed how we teach languages worldwide. But that's not all. Since the 1970s, when he unveiled his groundbreaking paper on reading speed and transfer of training, Paul's been unstoppable. With a whopping 230 articles, papers, and books under his belt, his writing prowess is simply unparalleled. He is also known for being one of the biggest names in English language teaching and one of the most prolific writers when it comes to vocabulary. But perhaps equally or more important than that is that he's also an exceptionally good teacher and very good at helping teachers teach better. And for all our language enthusiasts out there, you've probably encountered the revolutionary four strands concept and the masterpiece, How Vocabulary is Learned. Buckle up because today's conversation promises to be enlightening, inspiring, and truly unforgettable. Ladies and gentlemen, let's dive right in with the incomparable Paul Nation. Well, Mr. Paul Nation, I am nothing short of thrilled to have you here. Um, we've been reading your books, papers, watching your videos, following you for a very long time. And in preparing for today, I I was thinking that I should we should just really ask you questions that we have always wanted to ask. When we were having conversations together, when we were having conversations in the staff room, and when we were having conversations when we were reading your papers. So thank you very much for taking the time to come to the show and do this interview for us. Yeah, no, you're welcome. I, I thought we would start right from the beginning, Paul, because I didn't really find much about your beginning in language teaching. I did find an article that you wrote in early 70s about using conversation as a starting point for teaching. So perhaps you could yeah. tell us a little more about your humble beginnings and how you got into language teaching. Oh, well, um, I was in the very first, um, I guess, modern linguistics class at our university. I was a student in that class. And so they, we had just got a professor of English language, and and it was his first year of teaching at our at Victoria University of Wellington, and I um uh, I happened to be in that class, and he he did he just basically taught us you know the the classic structural linguistics and phonology, and it was a good a good basic course in the nature of you know, phonology, morphology, and and grammar and things like that, and then. When I was doing my master's degree, uh, there was he offered papers in um, oh I think it was transformational grammar or something like that, and I was right. you know, I think there was one or two of us in the class. I mean that was that was a case, and then a job came up at what was the English Language Institute, which is part of the university. Okay. I applied for the job. I think I was the only applicant. And I ended up getting the job. So there were so only two people quite... in the class, you said, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. And um, the and the other guy in the class is still still a good friend too. Um, and 
but his his career went went the way of Indonesian and Javanese and right things like that. And uh, anyway, so that happened, and so I ended up in in this English language institute. And the great thing about it was that um, we we had to teach two trimesters a year. And one of those trimesters involved language teaching. So we mm. actually had people who were coming to study at university and they had to do a pre-university course before doing it. Or we had and and we also had so one semester was actually just straight out language teaching. And then the other semester was teacher training. Mm. So we had people who'd coming to do a diploma in uh what was it? Diptesol. Uh Diptesol, yeah. Yeah. Diptesol. Yeah, the, the diploma the delta eventually became the delta yeah second language or something like that yeah or they or they'd do a certificate but they weren't delta no these were these were one full academic year courses right and um and so we had to teach that so and sometimes the people who were in the teachers courses had also done the pre-university course and and so that meant that you really had to put your money where your mouth was because here we were actually teaching English to these people, and then we then we were training them in how to teach English. So that meant that I always had a very practical concern mm -hmm. that any any sort of research or theory should really be translatable into practice. And mm -hmm. that's where I see my little niche in the field, if you like, and that is making sure that teaching is informed by research findings and that mm -hmm. research findings are really put up against the practical applications of those findings and the teachers that I had were actually my colleagues were actually had taught in India and uh and in and also in Malaysia and Iraq and right. places like that and and they they were part of sort of British colonial organizations, I guess, in a way. But mm -hmm. this meant that they were raised in the tradition of uh, Michael West and Harold Palmer and people like that in the British tradition of uh, language teaching. And so very early on, I knew all about simplification and word lists and, and all of that sort of stuff. And I really got quite interested in vocabulary. And I think we were the first university in New Zealand to get a copy of the Brown Corpus from Brown University when that came out. And uh, and we used to run, you know, it was a big, a big tape. And they used to, we'd do a search on a word, uh, you know, the word two, T-double-O, and say, well, what's the grammar of two and, and all of that sort of stuff. Oh. And we'd run it overnight at the unit on the university computer. Had to run it overnight, otherwise, it, if you used it in the day, there wasn't enough computing space. And so you'd come back the next morning, and there'd be all the printout of all the examples of two. It was simply a. It was so you were already looking at concordance lines way before concordance lines were a thing. Oh yeah, and so we were doing concordancing, but it was very interesting though because you know you'd take something like two, and you'd see that. You know, uh, you'd have it's too hot. Okay, mm -hmm. it's too hot to eat. It's too hot for me. Mm -hmm. It's too hot for me to eat. Mm -hmm. and, and when you when you listed these four different constructions, you you had the same kind of frequency relationship as you have when you list vocabulary. You know, yeah. um, the most frequent one, the simplest one, was the most frequent, and that would be 
you know, twice as frequent at least as the next one. And that one would be, you know, Zipf's law just worked for grammar mm. as it worked for vocabulary. So it was really quite interesting. And so yeah. that meant that even when we looked at grammatical aspects as well as vocab, we find mm. that these same laws of frequency of occurrence and diminishing returns occurred, you know. Yeah. And it's amazing, Paul, that this is something that was happening when you started teaching. And for some reason, I know that there were times, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Susan Hunston. We had her on the podcast and she wrote a book on pattern grammars and it, it is a, it's a yeah. fantastic book. And I know Scott Thornberry wrote a book, I think it's called Natural Grammar, where he basically looks at the 100 most frequent words in English and he basically yeah. looks at all the specific patterns that those words generate, yeah. the phrases that they generate. And the links they make to grammar. So you can still teach all the grammar by just looking at all these 100 words because they are contained in those um, typical grammatical structures that you would find naturally in course books, right? Yeah, and, and they are part of a very long tradition. I mean, one of Harold Palmer's early books was called A Grammar of English Words. Really? And, yeah, and he, he explored exactly the same thing. I and then my... My first boss, uh, H.V. George, he did one of the very early verb form frequency counts. So folks like Doug huh. Biber, who's doing great work on, you know, verb, uh, on frequency of grammatical constructions. Mm -hmm. I mean, H.V. Uh, George was doing similar work in India in the, 19, in the early 1960s without computers, but with a whole bunch of very diligent Indian teacher trainees. <laughs> who would go off and get X examples of this, and then they would count them up. And 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 the results are very similar. Huh. So there's a very, very long tradition of this going right back to the early 1900s. You know. Yes. I just found more information just to punctuate this. 1965, the book was written, and the abstract says, this English grammar book will provide 1,000 English words, their pronunciation, together with information concerning the several meanings of each word's its inflections and der derivatives, the collocations and phrases into, into which it enters in the book. So as you said, it's amazing how we kind of are recycling a lot of this stuff. Yeah, well, from... Palmer, Palmer's stuff on collocations started mm -hmm. in the 1930s. So yeah. he, he was publishing collocation lists as early in the early 1930s, I think, in Japan. Yeah. And yeah. It, so it, there's a long history there. Yeah. And, yeah. and in 1972, Paul, you wrote that I actually read the, it's a very old, I'm trying to find here, very difficult to read because it's, it's, yeah, somebody type, yeah, it's typewritten here. And it's a basically four or six pages on something called teaching conversation. And I wanted to ask you this because I, I think there has been um, some sort of a, a renaissance of, of what we call um, teaching unplugged. Some people call it dogma ELT conversation driven more like deep end approaches like task-based language teaching um and you wrote this that there are two main approaches to teaching conversation one gives the teacher a large amount of control of over what the learner says so i kind of think about ppp here and mm -hmm. the other gives the learner a great deal of choice regarding the constructions and vocabulary he or she uses these two mm -hmm. approaches are often used together at the mm -hmm. beginning of a course to, so you talk at the beginning of a course to learn a practices controlled conversation and learner as he learns more, he is given greater freedom. I wanted to ask you more 
about the the this free approach why that like where did you find yourself back in that day when you were teaching back in that time looking at conversation and looking at where we are at today is the focus on grammar still very much you know um at the center front or do you think that this more as you called here giving the learner a greater deal of choice as to what kind of language they want to say is becoming more popular what what do you well, what do you think no, I, I better go back and read that again myself actually because <laughs> I, I sort of didn't remember that but yeah but <laughs> that, that that article largely came from uh well we had a really good library and mm -hmm. so I then started I, I could I, I I had realized that a good academic was a person who went you know and read all the stuff that was written about things and looked into it and and so on like that and so those that that, that teaching conversation article mm -hmm. Might have been another one on teaching writing or something. I can't remember. Yeah. But that really came from just looking at what was published, and uh, and then I got really interested in in language teaching techniques, uh, yeah. and it was partly because it was a really interesting article by a guy called Earl Stevick, mm. um, who yes. used to teach at the Foreign Service Institute in in Virginia. And uh, in where they train diplomats and Peace Corps people and that that in languages, and and he he wrote an article called Technemes and the Rhythm of Class Activity, showing that you know if you do something and uh, use a technique and then you change it a little bit, is that a new technique or is it the old technique still? And his answer to that was a very practical answer. He says if you see the students perk up then it's a new technique. And if you see their heads continue to drop, then it's the old one continued. <laughs> but basically the point he was making is that you can actually take techniques and change them in smallish ways. Mm. And it, this can then, you know, have positive effects on learning and motivation and all of, all of the sorts of things like that. Now, so I started really looking into... I think I read every article which was written about teaching techniques. I'd be surprised if there were any articles that I had. I found had. the book here. This is the yeah, one. That, yeah, yeah. But but yes. I don't know if Stevick's article's in that book. It's in a very old... This of... one has one chapter that has some of his articles published where he basically just talked about some techniques and what's behind them. Oh yeah, okay. Well, maybe, maybe it's in there, but I, I I was very impressed with that article, and then so I I sort of read just about it. I mm -hmm. think I read every article that I could find on. You know, I did exhaustive right. searches of modern language journal right back to the early nineteen hundreds, and right. every issue of English Teaching Forum and ELT Journal and all of those. Desol quarterly, and I gathered together all the teaching techniques, and I plonked them into a book called Teaching Techniques, and so on. Right, and started to analyze them and look at it that way, and that's sort of been a theme in what I'm doing, being very analytical about that. But what what sort of happened was that I also did a lot of reading in second language acquisition research, mm. and I I remember being sort of puzzled because I. I read this stuff and I said, well, I read this stuff here about uh, fluency and how important fluency is and doing things like that. And then there's all this stuff about negotiation and 
how negotiation helps learning and, and that sort of thing. And then uh -huh. there's this thing about comprehensible input and how comprehensible input's really important for that. But how does it fit together? Right. And that was my problem, you see, because you read all this stuff and you say, well, I've got to get up there and front these teachers and say, well, here's how this you should be using this in your class. But I couldn't really see how it all fitted together. Right. So I then sort of saying, well, you know, these articles are like this and those articles are like that. And that's where I came up with the idea of the four uh, strands, which was so just a simple, it was a way of trying to bring what seemed to be disparate pieces of research, but bring them so that they actually had some relationship, not so much relationship to each other, but they fitted into an overarching whole that you could then see yeah, this is a place for this and this is a place for that and so mm -hmm. on and how they connect to each other. So right. it was really, so I was really trying to bring all of these things together so that they sort of made sense in that way. Right. And um, it's amazing that we're actually jumping straight into the four strands because um, lots of questions about the four strands, but for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the four strands, you've already mentioned how you came up with the framework. Can you very briefly explain what the four strands are? Hmm. Well, the uh, the four strands is really a curriculum design principle, and, and and so it's simply and it's a very arbitrary principle, and it's arbitrary in the sense that I've just made a decision that each strand is equal, right? And there's and there's no way I doubt if you could do research to show that that's right or wrong. Um, but it's 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 a convenient assumption right. that's about all. And the idea is, if you want to have a balanced language course and provide a good range of opportunities for learning that cover all of the kinds of learning that you need in a course, right? Then you need to have four strands in a course, and the four strands have to be equal in time for each other. And right. the, in my younger days, I used to explain the meaning of strand by plucking a hair from my head. Well, you can see how many classes I've taught about the four strands because I can no longer afford to do that. But the idea of a strand was was something something long and continuous running through the whole course. Right. And so the the the, the first or the first strand is the strand of meaning focused input, and that's really to take account of Steve Krashen's idea of comprehensible input and to take account of the importance of extensive reading and, and extensive listening and those sorts of things. And about a quarter of the time in a well-balanced course should involve learning from input, learning from listening and learning from reading. Now, you've got to then have a, a, a strand of output, which is somewhat similar to that. And so the strand of meaning-focused output is learning from speaking and learning from writing. Mm -hmm. And um and then you say, well, okay, yeah, but then the, the, the strand of meaning focused input, meaning focused, those two strands of output and input are where the learner is simply focused on understanding or making others understand the message. The focus isn't actually on language as language, it's on language as communication. So part of your course also has to be on deliberate learning of language. Now, now Steve Krashen, I guess, wants to exclude that from courses right. because 
you know, all you need is comprehensible input. But clearly, I don't agree with that. And there's tons of research to show mm -hmm. that if you do deliberate learning and deliberate language study, then you can learn things which are really useful for you in actually using the language. And so about a quarter of the time in a language course should be spent on um, language-focused learning. Mm -hmm. Now, in second language acquisition research, this is sometimes called form-focused instruction. Mm -hmm. And I, I tried using the terms form-focused instruction with my teacher trainees. It's... And, and being sensible people, they thought, well, form means learning the form. And instruction means the teacher teaching. So form-focused instruction involves largely learning the form being taught as you're being taught by the teacher. Right. Well, clearly, there's much more to it than that. Um, and so I don't think it's a very transparent term. So I use language-focused learning because then that provides the opportunity for form, meaning, function to be areas of focus. And it also indicates that um, learning can occur from teaching or learning can occur from individual effort or whatever you want to do. Right. So I just use it because it's a more transparent term. If people want to continue using form-focused instruction, okay, that's all right. It fits with the research. But teachers, teachers tend to be a bit baffled by it. Yes. And, and then... But then I was also very interested in fluency because in the early, in his very early research, Michael West did one of the first speed reading studies, and he looked at the looked at the effect of increasing learners' reading speed, and um, and I think it was West's PhD thesis actually, mm. and and so clearly then there has to be some part of a course where fluency becomes a focus of learning. And so the fourth strand is a strand of fluency development, where in each of the four skills of listening, speaking, reading, and writing, you become fluent. And that is not learning anything new, but being really good at using what you already know. Mm. And, mm. and this is very important in courses. And I've, I've got lots of little stories about, you know, people who are, who actually know a lot of language, but struggle to actually make use of what they know. Yes. And so the idea of the fourth strand simply says, if you want to make sure that your course is providing a good balance of opportunities for learning to give the learners the kind of language, knowledge, and skill they need, then you need to spend a quarter of your time on input where the focus is on the meaning and the message, quarter of your time on output where the focus is on conveying messages and in speaking and writing a quarter of the time on deliberate study of the language which you know can involve learning from word cards and intensive reading and and uh, getting your pronunciation improvement going and and doing word path analysis and all this sort of and you know studying grammar features and so mm -hmm. on and and a quarter of the time should be spent on fluency development right now the the great thing about this is that if you're prepared to accept this assumption there's a lot of things which follow from that assumption and one of the main things that follow is meaning focused input meaning focused output and fluency development are all communicative involve communicative 
activity. Right. They involve communicative tasks and things like that. You're doing that. things in the language. You're communicating yeah, using the in language. the language. Yeah, yeah. So, it's not so talking about the language. That's right. And and yeah. and even to the extent that I would say that, you know, in reading texts where they have a reading passage followed by comprehension questions, I sort of, yeah, okay, it could be meaning-focused input, but it's not meaning-focused enough for what I would like to call meaningful. It's not meaningful, right? It's not a meaningful thing. Because we think about... extens extensive yeah. reading where the learners are getting into a book and they're saying, oh, this is really interesting story. Mm -hmm. You know, I can hardly wait to turn the page. Or they're saying, what a load of crap. You know, I've, I've never read such a boring story in my life. Well, that that's genuine communicative thing. Yeah. And that should make up about three quarters of a course. Mm. And so that means that the other quarter of the course, the language focused learning, is you know in a it's in a it's in a one to three ratio with communicative work, right. and that seems to me to make sense. And and if but if you look around in many places, language focused focused learning takes up about eighty percent of the course time, and then the communicative ones take up about twenty. You know, it's sort of that that balance is not there. Um, so so that's, that's sort of one of the implications, you know. I'm curious because you mentioned that this is an assumption and you mentioned as well, it sounds like meaning focused can be interpreted. Do you have your own definition? You kind of mentioned the reaction of the student. Do you have your own definition of what meaning focused would be? Uh, yeah, probably not, but um, <laughs> I'll try and make one up. Uh, it, no, it's, it's where you're interested on the message of what is being communicated. You, you're not viewing it as or what words are being used, or mm -hmm. what grammatical feature is there, or you know, was that word correct or incorrect, or whatever like that. It's simply, uh, you know, can I understand this? Do other people understand me? You know, yeah. it's really, it's really just simply getting the message across. It's probably like pure, perhaps. Um, I would say it's probably like pure negotiation of meaning you're just trying to see if you understand what you're receiving and also under making sure that people understand what you're saying yeah but you have to be careful about using negotiation of meaning because that also has a technical term the mm -hmm. technical meaning which means where you do you know you there's a word you'd or, or you don't understand or, right. or or somebody said something that you didn't understand and then you have to yeah then you have to negotiate with that yeah yes but but in, in the more general sense, I'd agree with you. Yeah, yeah. it's where where the focus is on the meaning, and so, that's why I sort of I mm. bulk a bit about you know reading text followed by comprehension questions. You know why are you reading this this text? Well, because right. the teacher told me to read it, and it's there, and I've got to then get the questions right. You know that sort of thing. And you say, yeah, well, it's sort of meaning focused, but I'd like better meaning focus than that. And very low in terms of transferability, um, Paul, because I, I find that in real life, when are we going to actually read a text that is going to be followed by a list of comprehension questions? Yeah. Right? Normally, we read something because we want to talk about something that we read. We want to have a conversation with someone. We don't read something with a list of comprehension questions where we have to answer them or we have to circle true or false or doesn't say. No, you said yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, I think that 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 those questions are there because teachers teachers are worried that the learners might read it and then pretend that they understand, but they don't understand, or something like that. You know, right? 
I think it, I think it's probably catering for teachers more than for the learners themselves. Interesting. Yeah. As opposed to just having a genuine conversation about what did you think about the article? What did you understand about the article? And then take it from there. Yeah, that's uh, right. So, and, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to ask you a question, but I'll wait. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so I mentioned one of the implications from right. the strands, but there's there's an, another set of implications which I think are really important. And the four strands say, well, how much time should you spend on input-output Mm -hmm. deliberate learning and fluency development but you can go you can then go to a more particular level and you can say well um i, I want to do dictation mm -hmm. is dictation you know sh I, how much time in my course should i spend on dictation or i want the learners to do extensive reading how much time should i spend on extensive reading and it seems to me that the four strands gives you a rational answer to any question like that, because you then simply say, well, dictation, what strand does it fit into? Well, it's language-focused learning. Okay. Um, right. How much, what proportion of the time, so we know it's less than a quarter of the course should be spent on dictation. And so how much time, what proportion of the time in the language-focused learning strand should be spent on dictation? Right. Uh, and it's got to share that time with intensive reading and with deliberate learning from word cards and with pronunciation right. practice and with uh, learning self-checking grammar procedures for writing, uh -huh. getting feedback on writing. And then you start to say, yeah, well, dictation is probably about an eighth of that, of that strand. And so we're looking at an eighth of a quarter, which I hope is right. a 30 second. You know, and you sound, well, here we have this great precision, you know, one thirty second, mm -hmm. you know, seconds of the time should be spent on 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 dictation. But even though that seems a little, you know, foolish and over-precise, right. it's still making the point that, okay, if you think dictation should be there, it's only going to occupy a rather smallish part in the course and, you know, just make sure it doesn't doesn't you know turn into being the you know a major part of it right when you and come you... to something like extensive reading right then it's you know well extensive reading is half of the meaning focused input strand i was going to ask you that paul because yeah. you've mentioned that it's you said that the idea came to you and you you put these theories together you wanted to come up with names for them and you said it's quite arbitrary mm. but one of the questions that i have and i think this is a question that another um, follower of the podcast asked me to ask you so I think we're going to combine both questions is that you mentioned that dictation fits into one of the strands mm. but many activities could easily fit into more than one of the strands for example extensive reading could be I don't know if you agree with me but it could be meaning focused input or fluency development oh it is it is for sure and and so the question there is uh, what proportion of extensive reading should be meaning-focused input and what proportion should be fluency development? Uh, because for fluency development and extensive reading, you read way below your level. So if you if you know a thousand words, you should be doing fluency development through extensive reading at, say, the 800 or the 500-word level, even right. occasionally going to the 300-word level. You know, I read five books today at the 300 word level you know and they're right. each you know 
couple of hundred words long or something like that. And and but so and you can work out you see what the proportion should be. So you say, well, in the meaning focus input strand, extensive reading is half of the reading part because the other half is listening. So that means one eighth of the course time should be extensive reading for meaning focused input. Right. And in the fluency development strand, you've got one quarter for each skill, listening, speaking, reading, and writing. And almost all of the reading part could be extensive reading for fluency development. Although I I would recommend having speed doing as one or two speed reading courses as part of that strand, you know. Mm -hmm. But if, if you take a quarter of a quarter of the fluency strand, that's one sixteenth. And plus one eighth, that means three sixteenths of the time in a course should be spent on extensive reading because extensive reading straddles two strands. Mm. It straddles the strand of of input and the strand of fluency development. I'm and, definitely following. And, I'm definitely following. Uh, I'm, lo I'm lost in the math here, but I'm following. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you can sit down with a pencil and paper. and Yeah, I was, I was actually it. taking some notes. I was like, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, but, but, then, but then you see... The, what are the 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 slightly different activities in in mm. extensive reading because for fluency development you're reading really easy text right or meaning focused input you're at the cutting edge yeah you know you, you're okay. reading where there's a little bit beyond your your current knowledge now that sort of thing but but you're quite right too you know like say if you have a conversation activity. Yeah, well, that's that's going to be in the input and the output strands because one person's output is another person's input. So if learners are working together, for some learners, yeah. it's meaning focus input and for others, it's learning. Yeah. And, and that was just, one of the questions that we received. It was someone basically also asking about yeah. dogma ELT um, yeah. type of lessons where conversation is, as you said, fluency, it's practice. It's fluency practice, it's input, it's output, it's language focus. Not necessarily in the exact same proportions, but in 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 the ratio that suits that specific context, the yeah, learners right. and the topic, right? But but I think that you should be able to look at what goes on in that activity mm -hmm. and to say, yeah, this part is largely input, and this part is largely, mm -hmm. uh, you know, language focused learning, and this part is clearly easy for everybody, so it's fluency development. Yeah, mm -hmm. so so I'd agree. I mean. The the four strands is sort of cutting things into you know it's it's mm -hmm. sort of either one two three or four you know right. but in fact it 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 does with some activities clearly go over several but I I would still caution and say mm. don't use that as an excuse for saying it doesn't really matter about the proportions because otherwise then you've lost the whole point of the four strands because the whole point of the four strands is to say get the proportions roughly right if you don't have a fluency development strand in your course put one in but mm. don't let it take up more than about a quarter of the time and if your language focused learning is 80 percent or 90 percent of your course time boy you better find ways of cutting that down and and replacing it with input and output otherwise you're going to have learners who know a lot about the language but are not really good at using it and so on like mm -hmm. that. So so I tend to, and people also want to say, you know, should fluency development begin as a small part and become a big part 
big apart as you go, you know, so you don't have four mm. equal strands, but you have crazy. I tend to resist that as well because even I with think, beginners, if if you're doing a beginner's course, yeah, if you're a beginner, it's no good saying, "Well, I'm going to teach you some stuff," but you won't really be able to use it until uh, for another year, you know. <laughs> well, holy, that's the point. Know, I want to go down and buy my beer at the pub and be able to pay and say thank you to the bartender or whatever it is like that. Exactly. Without having to wait a year, you know. I want to go to the toilet. The last thing I want to do is to wait a year before I can actually say that in a way which which is fluent. And, I, and so I would argue that even from the very first week of learning a language, learners should be fluent in what they know. Not not in everything that they're learning, but you know that they should be quite fluent. I like to tell people that I'm very fluent in Japanese, um, and it's true. You you put me in front of a Japanese person who's never met me before, and for five minutes, I can convince that person that I'm a fluent speaker of Japanese. Wow! Now I've got to head off into the hills after five or ten <laughs> minutes because I've reached the end of my fluency. But the yeah. very limited things that I know, I know really well. Exactly. So you and, developed and my the... Big, uh, my big mistake is I don't know to shut my mouth and then <laughs> just imagine how good I am at all the rest of the language. But, uh, yeah. I say in Spanish about myself where I can introduce my... I can have the same conversation a thousand times again yeah, and again. Yeah, it sounds exactly. really good, but... Well, I don't know if you've looked at the survival vocabulary that that, that uh, David Crabb and I worked on. Uh, we did an article called The Survival Vocabulary for Foreign Travel. Mm. And it, it sort of came because I was heading off to Finland to teach in a Swedish-speaking university. And I thought it would be good to learn a bit of Swedish. So I went down to the language laboratory and I said, you got any, got any Swedish courses? Yep. Okay, I sat down. Three hours later, I came to the first useful sentence. And the first useful sentence was, Var liegen Toiletten? Where lies the toilet? Where yeah. lies the toilet? <laughs> yeah, Var liegen Toiletten. And, and I'm, I'm three hours into the course, into the course book, you know. And all the things before that is, this is a bus. It is a new bus. The bus is new, you know. And, and, you know, it's a blue bus, you know, it's a new blue bus. And, and you think, holy hell. And I thought, we can do better than that. Yeah. So, and I had experience clearly like you've had, Andrew, of being in another country. And it, when you learn, you can predict on the first meeting for what the first five minutes are going to consist of, you know. Yeah. How are you? Where do you come from? How long have you been here? You know, da, 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 da. It, it's all very predictable. And so this stuff should be learned really early and learned to a high degree of fluency. And so we made right. the, the survival vocabulary for foreign travel, which is now translated on my website into about 14 or 15 different languages. And within the space of no more than four hours in total, you can pass yourself off for the first five or 10 minutes as someone who's quite a fluent speaker of that language, if you develop a high degree of fluency. But it's uh, that's a neat party trick. Eh? That's a good party trick. I'm going to go through that, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I learned Greek on the airplane between Finland and Greece. I had wow. a Greek guy sitting next to me, 
And when I learned, there's only 120 words and phrases in the survival vocabulary. But when we landed in Athens, I could bargain for a taxi. I could, you know, tell the driver we were where we were going. I could go out into the market and buy some stuff to eat, you know, and I could be polite to the people at the hotel and tell them who we were and where we were from, you know. And that's simply because there was very judicious selection of this rather smallish mm -hmm. number of words and phrases, which which you then get fluent at because you just right. keep doing it until you can right. really get good at it. But for someone like you, Paul, you knew exactly what to focus on. You are familiar with the four strands. You knew what exactly what you needed to do for op optimal language learning. But how can a language learner or even a teacher assess if they are actually maintaining this balance that you just talked about? Is there a way for them to actually go back and, and do some sort of self-reflection and be like, okay, maybe I'm focusing too much on one. Perhaps maybe you could you could shed a light on this one. You know, it, that's sort of, it's partly what I'm working on at the moment, actually. I, mm. I, I, um, Can you give us some spoilers I, on that? I, I did the third edition of my book on... Um, uh, uh, learning vocabulary in another language, and you know, and I, mm -hmm. I said, well, uh, I'm never going to write another book after this. <laughs> That's my last book, and um, and it was a bit like I said in the introduction to that book. Uh, Spike Spike Milligan once said, uh, he said, after I wrote Pakun, I swore I'd never write another book. Here it is. And and it was it's a bit like me actually you know I swore I'd never write another book and here I am in the middle of it, but it's a book of teaching techniques, mm -hmm. and it seems to me that one of the simplest ways of working out of of actually of turning research into practical application is to make really good selection of the teaching techniques that you use in a in a mm -hmm. class. And and so the the book I think is going to be called something like the twenty most useful teaching techniques. And so if teachers then said, well, I'm going to use these techniques, and then they would then already have a rough balance of the four strands, because the techniques are chosen so that there are techniques for input, mm -hmm. spoken uh, spoken and written, techniques for output. Right. Spoken and written, there are fluency development techniques and there are language focused learning te techniques. And there are techniques which, you know, go across quite a few of the strands. And so one of the ways that uh, probably the easiest way a teacher can do is simply to say, what teaching techniques have I been using in my class? Well, what activities mm -hmm. have been happening in my class? What strand does each activity fit into? And how much time have I spent on each activity? And then you can do a rough sort of jigsaw puzzle to say, well, yeah, I now know, you know, how much time has been spent on input and output and and uh, deliberate study and, and mm -hmm. fluency development simply by just anal, you know, classifying the techniques that I've used in the class. And that yeah. seems to be the simple, most practical way. And it it seems to me that if if techniques are used well. That is, you do dictation properly, or you do extensive reading properly, you know how to do that properly, then in a way, these techniques are designed to put the findings of research into practice. 
Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome to another interview with uh, Teacher Accelerator member and Jessica Diaz. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you for inviting me. When you have only one one-on-one lessons, one-to-one, there's a limit. You're going to have a limit of students. And even if you have like 20 students, that's too much. You're going to be overworked and overwhelmed. That's not something that I wanted. I'm not leaving school to be overworked with something that's going to leave me trapped again. That's, that's the thing of having your online course, because you can be at the beach selling your course. This being overworked took, took a toll on my mental health. So I was like, I want to have time to go to the gym, to spend time with my family, with my friends. And I wasn't able to do that. I wanted to help more students. And I also wanted to have more time for myself and also to develop myself as a professional because I wanted to read more. I wanted to take other courses. There's so much things uh, in the tap course Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. You know, this podcast is just one resource that we have here at LYE to help you in your teacherpreneur journey. But I also wanted to speak about another one that we have, which is our Teacherpreneur Support Network, or TSN. TSN is a free community for emerging teacherpreneurs to plant the seeds of their businesses and watch it grow at their own pace. No rushing, no stress but with some light accountability to help you achieve what you're actually capable of. Specifically within TSN, you'll find free support from myself, Mike, and Leo to ask specific questions pertinent to your specific situation. You'll also find a free course on setting up the pillars to grow your business sustainably and avoid key mistakes that we made in our journey over the years. You'll also get access to all of our live workshops and live events focused on course and business design. More importantly, TSN is a guide to help you set up the foundations of your sustainable online business if you're really serious about taking that step. And it's all free to help you get moving. So to see if TSN is a good fit for you, you can join the conversation with other teacherpreneurs and us by clicking the link in the show notes below or just join from our website, learnyourenglish.com to get started right away. That's learnyourenglish.com. Once enrolled over there on TSN, you'll be able to work with us directly for free and be given the guidance to set up your business the sustainable way. No magic pills, no quick fixes, no million dollar promises. Just practical foundations that help you build the balanced business you envision for yourself. Better yet, you'll be able to collaborate with others on the same path as you. You know, we like to say that it's almost impossible to move forward unless we surround ourselves with others who are on the same trajectory as us. So if you're serious about challenging yourself and you really want to take that next step, head over to TSN and get started. Once again, you can click the link in the show notes or just join from our website, learnyourenglish.com. We hope to see you over there. And now let's get back to the show. You've mentioned the four strands as a, a way to build a curriculum or amend a curriculum or maybe build, build a course. Yeah. Is it meant for a holistic view like that? Or we get a lot of questions yeah. from teachers as well about individual lessons and this and that. Should or should not teachers, you know, think about this in terms of individual lessons, or is it more no, of a holistic approach? No, no, no. The the four strands is a bit too broad for the individual lesson. Um 
I can see that one individual lesson could simply be extensive reading. You know, mm. if the teacher said, look, we're, we're starting extensive reading, I'm not sure the learners are going to do it. If we set it as homework, um, then they uh, then the teacher says, okay, so for the next 40 minutes, we're all going to sit quietly and read a book. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a brave teacher who does that, um, but it, it's, it would be a well-educated and well-informed teacher who did that. I, I have to tell you, um, in Japan, I heard of a guy, um, Akio Furukawa, who started language school. Mm. Uh, and there's a very interesting story behind that, but we don't have time for it. And and he started the language school. And at his language school, the learners, so this is a school which goes from six o'clock till nine o'clock, I think. I think it's three mm-hmm. hours. Okay. And the students come once or twice a week after school. And uh, and so it's in addition to their secondary school work on English. And that they have a choice. They can either spend all of the three hours simply sitting quietly doing extensive reading. No teaching taking place, nothing. The teacher just sits quietly at the front of the class, reads a book, and is, might talk individually to one or two students or anybody mm-hmm. got a problem or something like that. And or they can choose to do half of the time sitting quietly, reading, doing extensive reading, and then the other half they have spoken interaction with a native speaker in a, a group of about twelve or something like that. Most go for the mixed one, but no matter what they choose, at least an hour and a half of their three hours are simply sitting doing nothing, mm-hmm. and we're not, not doing nothing, doing extensive reading, reading, and the, yeah. teacher, the teacher doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Now you think, oh, you know, would you would you invest in such a language school? Would you would you, you know, say, well, gee, this is a great idea. I'm going to put my money into that. Well, if you were a smart person, you would have because he's doing really mm-hmm. well. What's and the pre- name of the school? Do you know? Um, yeah, I do actually. Uh, Google that. It's only going to take me about three hours to remember it. Don't I, worry, I, we got look time. It up. Uh, I can also tell you where to find the name anyway. Um, let me just think for a minute. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, Akio, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, it's okay. We'll add it in the show notes. Don't worry, we'll find it. You know, in the book I did on extensive reading with Rob Waring, there's a case study of his school there. Now, I didn't believe that someone could set up such a school and make money because, you know, the idea is you come along and the teacher doesn't teach. You just, the teacher sits in the book, tons of books in the room. The learners choose any book they want to read and they just sit quietly and read it. Anyway, so I went along to see. And sure enough, there are the learners, mm. tons of classes. And we're walking around the area of Shinjuku with, and one of them says, oh, that's Mr. Furukawa's got, you know, he got part of that building. And Mr. Furukawa's got part of that building as well, you know, for his, these language classes and so on. And then, and and in the class, then Aki said, "Now you watch this." And so he said to the students, "Now, do you enjoy doing this extensive reading?" And of course, everybody said yes because they're, they're polite and things like that, so they would. But but in fact, they meant. It. And then he said, "If you had to do this at home, would you do it at home?" Almost nobody put their hand up because they wouldn't. And they said, "Well, why wouldn't you?" And they said, "We haven't got enough time." When we're at home, we've got to do our homework. Our friends are texting us. We, you know, life is going on around us. And so by coming to this class, 
we have a time where we have to sit down and do it. Now, he's doing well because his students do particularly well in the entrance examinations for universities. Mm -hmm. And that's the gold standard in Japan as far as classes for people at secondary school are concerned. If you do good in the entrance exams, you can get into the university of your choice, you know, that sort of thing. I saw the name of the school, Paul. SEG, Scientific Education Group. Yeah, that'd be... uh, Yoshinjuku Station... And I'm yeah, reading SEG, here. Same. Yeah, yeah, SEG. Yeah, and they're yeah. saying that the curriculum is divided into two strands, extensive reading classes taught by Japanese teachers and communication classes taught by native speakers. Yeah. Yeah. About 15 teachers led by one teacher, occasionally assisted by a trainee teacher. But that's yeah. basically it. No tests, no book reports, nothing. Nothing. Said no, students make a record no. of the book title, write a right. short comment about it, and that's it. Akio knows all about extensive reading. He's very well informed on extensive reading. You know, you, there's, you don't have to sit tests on the books you've read or something like it. And I was sitting there, and then. Well, why are we still doing this, Paul? Why are so many schools still not? And I think this is another question that we received is. So this, what? let me, yeah, this is a good time yeah. to get this, this from our, our friend, uh, Sean Hutchman, who follows us online. And he wanted us to ask you this, Paul. He said, <laughs> ask, yeah, ask him why institutions are so reluctant to adopt extensive reading. Because you say it's the one or the most impactful change, right? That, that a curriculum or yeah. a school could yeah, make I, to their I think curriculum. Why, why are schools so reluctant? Yeah, because it's a, br- first of all, you've got to believe that by not teaching, people can learn. Mm-hmm. Now, for a teacher, that's a hard thing to believe in. It is. Okay. It is. Because so, teaching so is often thing. believed to lead to learning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, the general belief is learning requires teaching, you know. And, and so that's one thing. And, and then the second thing is, you're a teacher, you're getting paid, you're going to be assessed on your students' results in some way, and yet you're supposed to sit there doing nothing? You know, it's it's a brave teacher who says, "I believe, I believe." You know, I'm going to I'm going to do it, and 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 things like that. And and you know, even myself, I would I would find it quite. Although I'm probably exaggerating, because in fact, when I when I was um, you know first did my first teaching overseas in Indonesia, the first thing I did was to set up an extensive reading course and things like that, and had enormous impact on our students, you know. Um, but but that's right. And so I think it's those sorts of things like the teacher, you know, it's a belief that learning requires teaching and and the teacher's sort of conscientious thing is, you know, I should be doing something. I'm a teacher and yet here I am not teaching. And yet, I don't know, if you've read one of my favorite books that I've written, what is it? What should every EFL teacher know? Mm-hmm. That's the one I, I actually thought was one of the most useful ones I've written. Um, you know, the, in there, it lists the jobs of the teacher. And the jobs of the teacher, the number one job, I think, is to plan. Mm-hmm. And, and that planning is saying, well, have I got a balance of the four strands? Other learners focusing on the most useful vocabulary and the grammatical features that need to be focused on and so on. So, so teacher plans. The second job of the teacher is to organize, you know, mm. get the extensive reading program running well, make sure that um, 
uh, learners are able to do good group work, you know, do problem solving discussions, mm -hmm. get, get that organized. The third most important job of the teacher is to train so that the learners know how to learn a language. And, yeah. and this is really important. Learners need to know the principles of learning. Teachers yeah. need to know the principles of learning. The learning ones that learn, concern yeah. us as language teachers, there's only about seven or eight principles which are really important. But, but you know, and they're not difficult to learn, but once you know those principles, then you can sort of say, well, am I doing the right thing? Does, does this apply them or am I doing something silly? Mm -hmm. And then the fourth job of the language teacher is to, is to test to make sure where the learners are in their knowledge and so on. And the fifth job, and this is an order of importance, is to teach. Mm. Because when you think about it, the strands of input, output, fluency development don't require teaching. They simply right. require planning and organization, maybe a little bit of training, and so on like that. And then when you get to the language-focused learning strand, that's where teaching needs to occur. But then quite a few things in the language-focused learning strand, such as learning from word cards, you know, that's that sort of thing and learning, you know, doesn't don't actually require teaching. So so the you know, teaching the teacher teaching is really something which should be a fairly minor part of classroom activity. Hmm. Do you think that's why there's still eighty percent of focus on focus on form or or whatever you want to call it? I think because so. people think that language learning, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think so. language learning strand. Yeah, I think it is. I think I think it's it's this idea of I'm a teacher, I should teach, mm -hmm. and because teach you know, and teaching is important because that's how learning occurs. Yeah, yeah. And you we... mentioned something important too about teachers' expectations, whether the effectiveness being judged by student results. Do you think if there was more institutional support for these kind of approaches, that teachers would be more open to it? Um, I think so. I mean, something like extensive reading does require institutional support because you've either, if you're smart, your your school will subscribe to a program like uh, X Reading, where all the you know the the extensive reading can all be done electronically. You have an unlimited supply of books at tons of different levels and so on like that. Or you have to set up a library and buy the books. And, you know, you can do it on a smaller level of, you know, each learner buys a different book and then you swap with each other. And and that's that I, I've never really seen that in action, but um, but it but it is a, a possible way of doing it. But ideally, you know, the institution would support it. And there are some institutions which really do support extensive reading very well indeed. They have very attractive libraries with hard copies. The learners have access to electronic reading, you know, through mm -hmm. X reading and so on, things like that. And I think that would make a difference. And then that legitimizes the teacher being the organizer rather than being the teacher, you know. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And you teacher as organizer, I like it. Yeah. Well, you wrote um the, about the four strands, that's when you first published in 1996. Have your views on the four strands evolved since you first introduced that concept? Are, in other words, like, are there any sort of updates or modifications that you would make 
based on re more recent research? You mentioned that you're writing a book or any sort of developments in the field of language learning? Um, there have been developments in that, but there have been um, probably the major development is that ideally the material in each of the four strands should should be uh, how would you say integrated in the sense that you know your reading should be feeding into the writing and the speaking and the listening right. and that sort of thing going across like that and that's that's largely because in more recent years I've been thinking about principles of learning mm. and and the real importance of repetition yes. repetition but uh, repetition probably better called revisiting you know and that means the the problem with a lot of course books and a lot of teaching is that the teacher goes through lots of material yes but it doesn't oh. come back to it you know exactly exactly and, and, we, and we know if learning is to occur i mean it's probably one of the most robust findings in learning research you know that the quantity of time you spend on something will affect the results of the learning greatly and quantity is one way in which quantity is uh, actualized is through repetition. You keep coming back to the same thing again and again. And so it seems to me then that in the four strands, if you if you have integrated material across the four strands, you're coming back to the same sort of the same material, the same language items and and and, and even the same content. Mm. you know in different strands then you you've got repetition built into your course in some way right i i sort of am coming to the belief that at least a third of the time in a language course should simply be spent going back to the old material you've already covered before mm. covering it either again in the same way or doing it in a different way and there mm. should be a mixture of what I call verbatim repetition and varied repetition, with with the majority probably being varied repetition, right. but with some verbatim repetition as well. So you'd go back to an old reading passage, and the teacher will say, "I'll use that as dictation for you now." Right. Or you you know you go back to some even a reading passage again and saying, "Now we're going to have a conversation activity based on this reading passage mm -hmm. we've covered before." Yeah. And I think at least a third of the time in the course should be spent on that. I'm trying to find a rationale for one third. You know, it's, it, once right. again, it seems a bit arbitrary, a bit like, you know, four yeah. equal strands. But I th I think I can probably find a rationale, but I can't pluck it out of my head at the moment. Or you know, everything you said makes a lot of sense, Paul. And I remember having reading actually about, I think it was Dave Willis, because he was in charge of the co-build project with yeah. Jane Willis. Yeah. And I remember yeah. him saying something along the same lines where good teaching is you basically just use the same core materials, what he calls a pedagogical corpus, and you just revisit yeah. that information over and over again by focusing mm -hmm. on different aspects of the language. Because then students don't have to process new texts. They don't have to spend so much time trying to understand something. And as you said, we, we teach something and then we move on to something new. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time just covering new material but not revisiting the ones that we have already no, dealt with I mean, no no my my old boss used to use the analogy of higher purchase you know and mm. that you buy something and you make the payments 
and you know and but you don't get it until you made all the payments right and you know when when should you uh, you know what's what's the most important payment payment number 1 or payment number 10 you know and and when you think about it you know if you make payment number 1 and then you say well I haven't invested much in that you know move on but once you you know if you really want to to learn something, then payment number 10 is a really important one. Mm-hmm. That's the meeting when, you know, it's it's now yours. And so it's like that with learning, you know, you, it, it, the most important part of any lesson is not the new material in the lesson. It's the old material, which is now approaching being learned. Right. And so teachers and teacher trainers often put a lot of emphasis on the importance of presentation. If it's presentation of new material, I think, you know, it's not worth a lot of effort. It's only the first meeting, and you're going to need at least another six, seven, or eight before it really becomes yours. And the really important times to put the, the you know, the the effort and the things in it is when it's getting near being learned. Yeah. And when does that happen? When when is there any sort of indicator? that you know something is yours, a word, maybe a sentence? Well, I, I imagine it, the the indicator is when it becomes part of your fluency as, as part right. of the fluency development strand, I guess, because the development of fluency it, with particular items and things like that is an indication of ready, readily, readily available for use. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And I guess that's probably the the kind of touchstone you want for that, I think. And yeah. you, you've mentioned something about the importance of training language learners to learn a language, which I yeah. also, I agree with you on that. I've always believed in the power of learning about learning. And you yeah. wrote about that in, in I think it was an article in 2022 with Laurie Bauer. I hope I'm not mispronouncing. Oh, yeah, it. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about morphological awareness. And the reason why I think that article is so relevant is because Andrew and I worked at a university here in Toronto where the first module of the program, which was a very successful program, in my opinion, I think Andrew will agree, is that the first week, maybe the first, maybe the first module, the first three weeks of that program was just mm-hmm language awareness yeah and of course there was a little there was a bit on morphological awareness so perhaps could you tell us a little more about this concept and why it is so important for language learners yeah well i mean i've I've struggled with several languages in my lifetime and and i i remember when i was you know starting to learn indonesian there's a whole pile of things that i did which were really a waste of time, you know, and, and boy, like what, you... like what, for example, just like learning, well, this is a bus, like in the, that, fin- well, that, that, would be part, that would certainly be part of it. But another part of it was I got a book and worked my way through the book from the beginning to the end. And, and, you know, I probably had about a thousand word vocabulary of Indonesian at that point. And that meant that I probably encountered probably one or two thousand or more different Indonesian words in that book as I struggled through. Now, if I had known about Zip's law in that in that instance, I would have known that half of the word different words in that book would only occur once. 
And so that meant right. and that they, they would be unlikely to occur in the next book that I read. And, and you know, so I spent all this time struggling with these sort of words. And, and then, you know, I'm sure they just went out the back door. Uh, I got a little bit wiser um, accidentally in that I, I, I found a book about morphology in Indonesian called Morphology. And and um, oh boy, that was much easier for me to read because I brought a lot of background <laughs> knowledge, you know. And so, and 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 because I brought a lot of background knowledge, and because there were a lot of loan words in the book, then that wasn't such a a, a fruitless, difficult sort of activity. Um, at the moment, I'm still struggling to learn how to read Thai, but one of my major sources of reading texts is recipe books because mm. first of all i'm interested in cooking right recipe books are great because each page is largely the same vocabulary coming back again you know right and, and so you get tons of repetition and and so on like that at the moment i'm reading about one kind of dish right. uh thai dish which has about you know many many variations and so the same stuff is coming back. And then if I want to move to the next level, then I'll either move to a different kind of dish or to a more mixture, a greater mixture of dishes, you know, and things like that. And then the idea of, you know, word cards and retrieval and things. Mm -hmm. I fortunately knew about that then. Uh, and so that made my learning a bit, quite a bit more successful. But a lot of people don't know the importance of doing deliberate study on word cards with the word on one side and the translation on the back, they've probably been told that, you know, using the first language as translation when you're learning is bad, which is nonsense because it's actually mm -hmm. very helpful. Yeah. And the research shows very clearly it's helpful, you know, things like and, that. And is there, re I think you did the research because you wrote the paper, but is there research that supports this idea that we sh it's useful and important to teach students word formation, you know, affixation, suffixes, prefixes, things like that? Well, I, well, the research is mainly that learners don't know it. Exactly. Uh, and and um, there's very little research showing the effectiveness of doing it, but I hope that that will be coming. But mm -hmm. there's tons of research showing that learners have great struggles with this. And yes. it's actually one of the areas of debate in the vocab field at the moment of... Uh, how big is a word family? You know, how much mm. inflectional and derivational knowledge can we assume that learners will be able to use to deal with members, member, the related members of a word family? And there's almost blood on the floor in that debate. It's quite interesting. And, uh, in fact, whole issues of journals have been devo devoted simply to this this argument. But ba the basis of the argument is really saying, well, learners really struggle with with good parts and so on yeah now you know whether studying them and learning them will help i mean i'm i'm quite happy to 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 predict that future research on this will show very clearly that it's easy there's not many to learn mm -hmm. you know it's probably less than about 90 word parts which are worth really spending time on in general unless you're a medical student or something like that Right. And and the number's probably even smaller than 90, probably about 40 or 50. But doing a bit of deliberate work on that and so on 
Uh, incidentally, going back to what we talked about before with the four strands, you know, what mm. proportion of a language course should be spent studying word parts? When I did the sort of analysis of what strand does it fit into, well, that's language-focused learning, and what proportion of that strand, it ends up about 4% of the time in a language course should be spent deliberately focusing on word parts. Only a very small amount of time, but it's very valuable because then this this allows the learners to be able to take charge of their own learning. But it's really important. I think I think course books should include training in how to learn. Yes. I can tell Some you my favorite training. Yeah. I can tell you my favorite story on that. Uh, uh, I've probably told it too many times now. No, but, no, it's okay. Uh, I I I I, I was working outside and I fell over and I had a sore shoulder. So I went along to the physiotherapist and I said, uh, you know, can you can you do some that? Oh yeah, yeah, we'll have to that. We got talking and it turned out he's a he was a good friend of my old colleague. He used to be a colleague of my nephews, and they used to work together in the what was the telecom in the post office. And um, and I said, well, you're working in telecom. How did you become a physiotherapist? And he said, well, when I was working in telecom, we had to do courses. And we had to go on these training courses. And in one of the training courses, the trainer said, here's what you got to know. Now, I'm going to show you how to learn that. And so the trainer gave them some learning tips. Now, the, the learning tips from my perspective weren't that great, but they were okay. They were things like write it on post-it notes and stick it on the wall in your toilet so that when you sit on the toilet, you'll see it, you know, and stick it on the door of your fridge and things like that. But he gave them sort of hints like that. Now, I'm, I could give 10 times better hints than that, you know, but even so. And, and this guy said, he said, and when I did those, when he showed me what to do, he said, I found I didn't have any trouble doing the learning because when I was at secondary school, I thought I was dumb because I did badly in exams and things like this. And this guy showed me how to do the learning. And I realized, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm not dumb after all. And so he went and did a, when he got redundant, made redundant at telecom, you know, with the digital revolution and so on, he went along and did a course in physiotherapy at university and then become a really, you know, well-known physiotherapist in New Zealand. Very, very wow. capable. And in a way, you could almost say that was because his teacher showed him how to learn and 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 the tricks in the how to learn are very simple tricks like things like do repetition make sure that you do retrieval pay attention to what you know work out what you want to learn and pay attention to what you want to learn um you know the, the amount of time you spend on studying or doing something will be reflected in the amount of learning that occurs. And, you know, there's there's very simple, basic principles that anyone can learn in a fairly short time, but which could make, you know, change the effectiveness of what you do uh, considerably, you know. So I, I think that language courses should include training in how to learn, and they should also include things like, okay, we're now at lesson 10. Go back to the reading passage in lesson three and do a four, three, two activity based on this reading mm -hmm. passage. They should build repetition into the course. And the learner should know why they're going back to the reading passage in lesson three and doing that, saying, This is giving you repetition of this, and it's now 
turning into productive use what you what you previously did receptively. So people should be aware of what they're doing and and know how to learn. Yeah, that's very well, useful. I mean, maybe that would be your your answer, Paul. I think we're going to go into some more audience questions here, but one one that came to us today from from Allison Pledger on LinkedIn is is about reading, and maybe maybe that's your answer. But she's she's asking, you know. With with reading, extensive reading, what would be? I guess it's hard to choose one, but she asks the most the most helpful thing we as teachers can do to help students improve their reading skills. Well, the most helpful thing teachers could do: make sure that they're reading at the right level, hmm. so, so that and you can do this in in a couple of ways. One way is the learners could could test themselves, or the teacher could test the learners to see how big their vocab sizes are. And if they're learners uh, at a sort of elementary, low-intermediate level, then you would use the vocabulary levels test. If mm. they were learners at a more higher intermediate advanced level, you'd use the picture vocabulary size test, the PVST, or the vocabulary size test. You could go to vocab myvocabularysize.com. And, and test yourself there. And then you could then make a choice of reading there. Or you could simply just take a book and say, how many unknown words in the first two or three pages? If it's more than one or two per page, then I've chosen the wrong book. I should choose an easier book. You know, you can just use this informal way of doing it. But getting learners reading at the right level is mm -hmm. critical because that will mean that they can then do large quantities of reading, which is also critical. Um, and 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 they can do that in. It doesn't take a lot of time. I've I've done research to try and work out: is it feasible to you know? Can you learn? Can you meet around about a thousand words a year enough times to have a chance of learning them? Right. Uh, you know, by doing several minutes of reading a week, and it is feasible to do it. Uh, you need. In the early stages, the reading need only be, you know, half an hour, an hour a week or something like that. And as you get more advanced into the 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 word level, because the words are more are less frequent, then you should be doing greater quantities of reading. But it still right. doesn't get much beyond a couple of hours a week or something like that. Okay. But, you know, by doing that, you could you could have substantial effects on your vocab size and your reading skill. I I, I would say the same. Um, I find that students who read extensively and are still taking language programs are the ones who progress much faster in terms of language acquisition. Those are the ones who really see the gains immediately because they can actually. I feel like they're, they 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 build more of a bond with the language by reading in the language. And I find for myself, I think a lot of my language learning experiences were positive because I was always reading in a foreign language. But, but, but um, I, yeah, I think it's even simpler than that. I, I've I'm, I tend to be a reductionist and try and get oh, yeah? things to the simplest level possible. I reckon there are only three things that really matter in learning. What are they? What you focus on. So, so we learn what we focus on, uh, the quantity of attention given, and quantity includes right. repetition, but it also includes how much time on any one focus on something, right. and then the quality of attention that's given, how, how deep and thoughtful is this attention. Mm. 
And if you do that, and so your example that you you gave of people doing reading and things like that, they're getting the repetition, thus they're, they're putting that time into that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that, so, that's why it works, you know. So quantity, quality. Focus, focus, quantity, and quality. Quality, QQF or FQQ. FQQ, yeah. FQQ. Yeah. 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 Come, come to, we're having a conference at the end of this year called Vocab at Vic. We're about every two or three years is a vocab conference, and I'll be giving a paper there, and that'll be my paper on, you know. Not your last paper, because you still have a book coming out soon, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. We, yeah. Have, uh, we have more questions here uh, from the audience. We have one from Pavel Sudarsky, who basically asks you about oh, yes. um, yeah. approaching collocations from the perspective of L2 learning. If incidental learning leads to only modest gains by second language learners, for example, EFL learners who don't read enough in the second language, is explicit, explicit teaching the answer? And if yes, what forms of L2 explicit teaching? Okay, so so this is another question where the four strands can provide an answer. So really, Pavel's question is saying, uh, if I re reinterpret that question, is um, how do you learn collocation? And the yes. answer to that is four strands. So that means you should learn collocations through input, just incidentally through reading. You should learn collocations through output, incidentally through speaking and writing. And I think fluency development activities are really good for developing knowledge of collocations because with fluency activities you get quantity of input mm -hmm. but you have a pressure to work with a unit of language which is higher than the level of the word mm -hmm. if you want to get faster at doing reading you then have to start instead of thinking and working at the word level you start to have to work at the phrase level and so on ah, okay okay but but a well so word phrase sentence then you would yeah, progress it, it that it's way what mclaughlin calls restructuring right if you do something and you can you can do it reasonably quickly, but you reach a point where you can only by doing it that way you can't get any faster. And if you want to get faster, you have to then change the way you do it. You have to work with a different kind of we could call it unit of analysis or something like that. Mm. Now, like you know, I'm struggling by learning to read Thai. When I start off struggling away, I'm working. At lower than the letter level, I have to say which distinguishes this letter from that letter. And I'm right. looking at bits of letters. You know, it's like what's the difference between b and p and d, you know, and g, you know, the circles here and the And you're there. having a good time doing that, you see, it yeah. seems. But but yeah. then as I get better, then I find, well, now I can just look right. at a letter and I and I don't have to do that. Right. But then I can see I'm making progress when I can say I can now recognize a whole word as a word i don't have to you know go letter by letter and then i'm getting really good when i look at this and i say this this word's likely to be following this word you know i'm now working at a at a higher level than that right and 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 so that's that's why fluency helps collocation mm. now about a quarter of the time in learning collocations because it should be spent on language focused learning and and mm. so so then uh, Pavel's question then says, well, what kind of language-focused learning opportunities 
should be supporting the learning through input, output, and fluency development. And I would, first of all, say that the, the thing with collocations is that the vast majority of collocations in English are, are transparent, mm -hmm. at least to some degree. That is, the meaning of the parts relates to the meaning of the whole. Right. We talk about things called idioms and, and idiomatic expressions and things like that. Yeah. But one of our PhD students did research to say, well, how many core idioms are there in English? That is where you look at the meaning of the parts and it gives you absolutely no idea of what the meaning of the, the whole is. Right. Yeah. Where the parts don't tell you the meaning of the whole. How many are there in English? There's less than a hundred. Seriously. Seriously. And and so you've got an expression like as well as. I know the meaning of as, I know the meaning of well, I know the meaning of as, as well as, you know, and then people say, well, raining cats and dogs. Well, raining yep. is not, raining's transparent, but cats yeah. and dogs is not transparent. Right. Because cats yeah. and dogs means uh, means heavily, you know. And so that, that one doesn't help. And Ooh, it's, huh. it's, so there's less than a hundred of those. So if, if you want to look, there's articles in my on my website. If you look at Grant G R A N T, around about two thousand and eight okay. or something like that, Lynn did research on it and found there's this very limited number. Now there are expressions like you know I see the light at the end of the tunnel, mm. where there is a figurative meaning. And there is a literal meaning for that. And but the figurative meaning, you know, is not a is not an accidental random thing. You can actually see the connection between the literal meaning and the figurative meaning. So I think that the way that deliberate attention should be given to collocation is for learners to keep looking at how the meaning of the parts relates to the meaning of the whole. Don't don't see a collocation as something where you give it a meaning which doesn't relate to the past. Look at it analytically and do that. And then I would think the the probably the most important piece of advice is there are now a lot of good studies looking at the frequency of various various collocations. And I'd be putting the collocations onto word cards and deliberately learning the most deliberately analytically mm. learning the most frequent collocations and and making sure that you've got to a high degree of fluency with them. And, and Paul, who to, would be a person that we could speak to about that? About what? About this research on collocations. Uh, now, let me think. Oh, there's quite a lot of people. Do. I mean, um, Norbert Smith and okay. one of his PhD students did, did very good work uh, on collocational research. Uh, Gosh, I'm going to get into trouble again. Could be direct. <laughs> Tough questions today. Rant, I think it is. Um, I have the on. I have the one that you just mentioned here. Um, uh, let me see. Two thousand six. I've got a feeling I've got that wrong. I think he might have done done a different piece. But they, they did a they did a list of um, of the of the most frequent semi what they call semi transparent collocations. Uh, one of my PhD students, Shin. How Shin many idioms? Huang. Is this the one? How many idioms are there in English? Oh, that's Lynn Grant. Yeah. G R A N T. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but 
Lynn and I did an article together, and Laurie Bauer was actually one of the supervisors as well. And and Laurie and Lynn did an article together on on the, the collocations and things like that. Okay, we have one of last question. Which, oh. Of the ones which are not transparent, okay, there's only a small number which are frequent. You know, a very small number which are frequent, and the oh. others, you know. If you wanted to learn them, you should be learning them once you know about five or six thousand words at least, you know. Right. There's only a few like of course and as well as and probably three or four others, which even get into the first three or four thousand words of English, you know. I'm trying to remember. Somebody wrote an article. I think it was Martinez. That's it, Ron Martinez. Martinez and and Schmidt. Schmidt, yeah. yes, a phrasal yeah. expression list. That's the that's one. It. That's the one. That's, I actually have very... Martinez. I contacted him. He's going to come on the podcast. So I'm glad we were talking about the same person. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew I got the got the name wrong because I think was it Philip Durant did a different topic with Norbert. Yeah, but it was Norbert. Norbert yeah. supervised that research. It was very, very well done research and very useful result. Um. Two more questions here, Paul, very quickly before we let you go. The first one is from Anthony. He is basically asking about your views on the research on multimodal input and its role in vocabulary development, as well as to the extent this affects the primacy of extensive reading. What, what is it? Multi, multimodal? Multimodal, imp, yeah, multimodality, a multimodal input and its role in vocabulary development and the extent to which this affects the primacy of extensive reading. Oh, I'm not sure I understand the question, but the the principles of learning I mentioned before of focus, quantity, and quality. Mm-hmm. It, the, the, the principle or the group of principles relevant there is the principle of focus. And, and the basic principle of focus is you learn what you focus on. Right. So that means if you focus on pictures, then you're not going to learn language. Mm. So, so, so that if you give attention to language, then you'll learn language. Now, I'm not saying you don't use pictures to convey meaning, but I'm simply saying that where your attention is focused, right. that's what you will learn. Hmm. And and um, I mean the person who's done the most research on this is a guy called Joe Barcroft, and 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 his research shows very clearly, you know, that if you spoken focus on spoken forms, you learn spoken forms. If you focus on written forms, you learn written forms. Whatever you focus on, like that. So you've got to be careful in multimodality learning. Mm-hmm. That if you if you're doing it to learn reading, but you're also providing meaning through visuals and things like that then you're taking attention away from reading interesting a lot of apps do that because they present words with pictures so interesting and and if one becomes a substitute for the other then you don't need to learn pictures but you need to learn reading or listening or whatever like so you've got you've got to make sure that what's getting your attention is what is the goal of your learning right oh so 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 I'm happy about multimodality learning if it supports learning and so on, but but you've got to make sure it does. Um, That's a very interesting yeah, way anyway, of, yeah. of putting it. it yeah. there's, there's, there's reasonable pieces of research. Some of my colleagues at Victoria have done research on that. 
using eye tracking procedures or what learners pay attention to, you know. And so if right. you have if you do have lots of pictures or or hyperlinks and, with pictures and things like that, when you give a, attention to that, then you're not giving attention to something else because we're all basically one channel receivers. Right. And, and uh, so so that's all you have to be careful about. Right. One last question for you, Paul. And this is, again, given your extensive experience and your contributions to the field of language teaching, vocabulary acquisition research, what do you see as the future of language learning and teaching, especially now with all these emerging trends, AI, these different technologies? What? How do you think these will shape the field in the coming years? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one, but I I know how I hope it will shape the field. That, that um, works for us. Yeah. Um, I remember the, the, when language laboratories first appeared. Oh, wow, you're going Language back, laboratories yeah. were going to be the answer to everything. But it, it really comes back to what I said, I've said several times during during this, this uh, interview, and that is, what matters in learning is what you focus on, the quantity of attention you give it, and the quality of attention that is given. And and you, when you when you look at uh, you know uh, AI and all of these things which happen, they're not going to change the, the the requirements for learning. We're still going to have to have focus, quantity, and quality in order for learning to take place. Now, my my great hope for the field from a vocab perspective would be um, that we we have have programs which would then allow us to turn a native speaker level text into adapted text which suits mm. the level of learners at any particular level. You know, so you can say, well, look, I'm a learner who only knows a thousand words. Give me a whole pile of text. That I can work with, and I, 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 in terms of reading, we're pretty well supplied. But I could still see how AI could really help with that. But then I'd also love to see it for listening. You know, this is a the big issue in each of the four skills of listening, speaking, reading, and writing. There should be what, what you know. We've got extensive reading. We should also have extensive listening. We should also have extensive writing. And we should also have extensive speaking. Now, when it comes to extensive listening, it's a real barrier yeah. because you either have to have specially written text, which is then sort of recorded and doesn't sound that natural or so on, or you you have to search around for text which where people are actually speaking simply but speaking naturally. And it, it's not easy to yeah. find text and if we could have the same amount of resources available for listening as we've got for reading you know along with multi multimodal support and things like that that would be an enormous advance mm -hmm. and so i see that the sticking point at the moment in language learning is something that ai could address and that is how do we provide extensive listening for learners at a whole range of levels of proficiency so that they can they can get comprehensible input no matter what their proficiency level yeah so that's how i hope it's done i have one more very simple question 
the four strands is is phenomenal and impact has impacted all of our our teaching but i'm i'm a very curious person and four is a nice you know even number goes into nice blocks was there ever a fifth strand yeah well someone asked me that the other day and good question and, (laughs) and and if i wanted to make a fifth strand it would be the strand of learner training Mm. At present, learner training is put as part of the language-focused learning strand. So I consider language-focused learning language-focused learning strand as deliberate attention to language and deliberate training in the principles of language learning, like that. Now, you could argue that learner training is important enough to be its own strand. And uh, I can see that I I would hesitate to do that simply because I think learner training can be done fairly efficiently without having to devote one fifth of the course time to learner training. If you had the five strands, and I think that you know having it as you know one sixteenth or one thirty second or whatever it is of the course as right. part of the language focused learning strand probably still pretty effective because. To be a good learner, there's not a lot to learn, but it's there are some very well-established things to learn. And that's what the book is going to be about, one of the books that you're writing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and the interesting thing is uh, I'm doing the 20 best techniques. Right. And I've got about 17, 18. And then I keep changing my mind. And the more I think about it, the more something melds into something else and so on. But I thought, is one technique the technique of learner training? Mm. And and you could say, well, is learner training a technique? Well, you could sort of argue what that it is because the teacher gets up and says, here's the principle, here's how you apply it, yeah. do X, Y. And you could use that simple thing of explanation, uh, exemplification and application Mm -hmm. you could go through the same steps so so it'd be interesting to see in a few months or so whether i actually decide that yeah learner training is worth singling out as something which could then be treated as one of the 20 most important techniques and when is the book going to come out so we can i never comment on that because i never Publishers don't know I'm writing it because my way is I write the book first, then I see if anybody's interested. Oh, and the reason yeah. is because I write books primarily for myself. I very write interesting. Books. We should yeah. do a podcast where we just talk about your approach to writing because I'm very interested in, in that as well. Yeah, I huh. okay. Yeah. Paul, okay. thank you very much for your time. Um, yeah. I hope you enjoy the afternoon in... In New Zealand there in Wellington. Is that where you're based, right? Wellington? Yes, and I don't know if you can see, but the sun is now shining on a winter's day. Oh, so yes. Good. That's amazing. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll be okay. in touch. I'll definitely email you when the podcast is out, and I will probably bother you asking for some names, especially the one on multimodality, because I think we want to have him on the show as well. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank okay. you very much, Paul. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.